Well, thanks, uh, Lyndall. It's great to have, um, to have that reading before us, and thanks for reading it so clearly and helpfully. If you can keep that open, that'll be where we're spending our time this morning in, uh, in John chapter 3, uh, so it'll be great to have that, uh, have that handy. Uh, this is our fifth week in the series, uh, Lord, Please Make My Church, and I'm going to ask that God would help us uh, as we look at the fact that we want to be a church that's eager to give the message of new life. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your great goodness. Thank you that when we were far from you, you came and sought us out. Help us today, Father, to open our hearts and our minds to you, that you might speak to us, calling us from darkness to light and encouraging us to take that light into the world beyond here. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, it's, uh, it's not too often that uh, we, we listen to advice from an atheist in church, okay? doesn't happen very often. But what I want to do, I want to open my sermon today with some advice from an atheist. How's that sound? Uh, at least I have your attention, which is wonderful. Uh, this is a guy, uh, I, I don't know if you've seen him before, but have a listen. What, what, what do you think? So here's an atheist, Penn and Teller. You might have seen them. They're a famous magician act. His point's pretty convincing, isn't it? There's a certain point at which I tackle you. That's what he said. If I really believe that, there's a certain point at which I tackle you. And so, church, I guess I want to ask us today, what do you really believe? What what do you really believe? Is, Is it a nice idea that kind of you sort of feel a little bit of commitment to? Or do you actually believe this is the fabric of reality? This is the destiny of humanity. This is the word of God. And what we need to think this morning is what do we believe? And if we believe what we say we believe, what would we do with that? What would we do with that? So I want to ask you to think very carefully about what you believe. And I want to do that by encouraging you about what we believe as a church. And I want to call you to join us in that belief because I think it'll call us to, act, to action. All right. Well, here's a good place to start. We've listened to the atheist. Now listen to a baby. That's nice, isn't it? Now, uh, the, the whole birthing process, I was present at the birth of both of my children. It's important to say I'm an onlooker, okay? And uh, I think that the other p- party in this equation just does an extraordinary thing. Uh, were, were any of you present at a birth? Some of you were. Right, okay. Uh, it's a fairly memorable process, would that be correct? Uh, certainly, um, there are some little ones that come through it a little bit distressed. There are certainly some other ones who are watching on that come through it distressed as well at times, I- I'm led to believe. Uh, whatever it is, uh, very few of us would want to do it a second time. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus tells Nicodemus. Have a look with me in the Bible here. We're going to have a look at John chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 3 to 8. So John chapter 3 and verses 3 to 8. Uh, Nicodemus is a member of the Jewish ruling uh, group, and uh, he's come to Jesus at night because he's afraid that people might see him talking with Jesus. So they're having a little conversation in the quiet. Uh, Jesus replied, very truly, verse 3, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And everyone said, amen. Let's not imagine that has to happen. 
Verse 5, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Well, what on earth is Jesus saying here? He's saying that for you to enter the kingdom of God, for you to be people who will live forever with Jesus, you need a second birth. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh. You've been born once, but you need to be born a second time. The spirit gives birth to spirit. And what he says, you need a spiritual rebirth. You need a spiritual rebirth. And uh, that, that rebirth is by water and the spirit. And there's lots of debate about this, but I think it's helpful to think, is it baptism and then the Holy Spirit coming on? Oh, that's, that's a helpful way to think of it. Uh, there's blood and water at the first one. Maybe there's water and spirit at the second birth, the, the baptism and the, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So this second birth is what will equip you for kingdom transformation. So God will take hold of you and he'll make you new from the inside out so you're ready to inherit eternal life. That's the second birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh. We have a body. But if you want your soul to live forever, God says, I I need to make you new again. You need to have a second birth by the Holy Spirit. You must be born again, Jesus says. And then he continues, and he mentions a story that comes from the Old Testament. And he alludes to it, but I want us to have a look at it today. Uh, In Numbers, I'll read it to you. Uh, In Numbers 21... Verses 6 to 9, we hear the backstory to this. Oh, I was told by Jody, I am looking at a green python. Is that no? A green tree python. Sorry, Jody, my apologies. So there's, there's a snake. Uh, that's going to become very important uh, as we see here. Uh, this is not a venomous one, though, unfortunately. So uh, 6 to 9 in Numbers 21. Uh, the people of God have been wandering around in the wilderness. They've now spent almost all the 40 years in the desert, and they're just coming to have a second crack at entering into the promised land. But they're being a bit stubborn. Uh, Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. I pray that all the time. Lord, take the snakes away from me. That's, that's good. Uh, so Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now, does anyone else think that's an unusual story? That is a very, very unusual story, isn't it? Uh, bronze snake on a stick, lifted up in the middle of the camp. If you're bitten by the snake and you're going to die, look to the snake and you'll live. So you look and you will live. It's extraordinary. It's absolutely unusual. There is no precedent for this anywhere else in the whole of the Old Testament. Incidentally, for those of you who don't know, this is why the doctor's symbol is a stick with a snake wrapped around it. Did you know that? Okay, good. If you didn't know that, that's where it comes from. So The idea here is trust God's word, look at what has been lifted up, and you will live. And you will live. Now, Jesus bizarrely picks this up in talking with Nicodemus. Have a look at verses 13 uh, to 14 back in uh, John 
chapter three, where he says this, Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Can you see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying something strange happened in the Old Testament and we would otherwise think, God, why did you get the people to make a bronze snake? And And Jesus is saying that was actually set up for me. It was so that I could fulfill it. Jesus says, I'm the son of man. I am going to be lifted up in the sight of all Israel. And if you look to me, you will live. Whoever believes will have eternal life. It's an extraordinary promise, isn't it? And I'm sure most of you hadn't come across that before. But here's Jesus connecting a bizarre piece of the Old Testament to himself. See, how is Jesus lifted up? Jesus is lifted up, isn't he, on the cross. He's lifted up. And I think the lifting up is lifted up in his crucifixion and then lifted up again in his ascension to the right hand of the Father. You will look to the one who has been lifted up and when you look to him and believe in him, you will live. You will live. Uh, do, Do you know the whole love languages thing? How many love languages are there? Does anyone know? Five love languages. Do you know what your love language is? If you've never heard the concept of love languages, you guys obviously got this sorted out. If you don't know the concept of love languages, uh, you are loving other people with your love language. In other words, if you're a quality time person, you're giving people quality time. If you're a words of affirmation people, you're giving words of affirmation to others. The thing that, unless you work this out, the thing that's unusual is you figure everyone should love your love language. But other people have other love languages. And so what can happen is you might be a words of affirmation person and they're someone who wants quality time. Right? So you've just gone, you are absolutely amazing, now I'm out. And they're going, that didn't take very long at all. They don't love me. Right? So when, the love ma- when we don't know what the love language of the other person is, we can be giving this thing that we think is really precious, right? but it's not received on the other end. Uh, Husbands, wives, figure out love language stuff. It's really helpful. Save you a whole bunch of time. Actually, it might cost you a lot of time if they're a quality time person, but you get the idea. So here's the question. What's God's love language? What's God's love language? Well, it probably is all five. That's that's probably a very wise answer, Russell. Well, let's go with that. Uh, That's that's very wise. But, But here's the thing. In this famous, famous verse, I think we see God's love language. Have a look with me at John 3.16. It bears some looking again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, God's love language is gift giving. And he gave the most precious thing that he had to give, his son. And he gave him not just so that we could enjoy him, but so he could be lifted up and ultimately die. It was a gift of extraordinary extravagance on behalf of our Father. What's God's love language? I think it's gift giving. And he gave the most precious gift he had, his son. And so we see in John 3.16 that love gives. Love gives. It doesn't just bottle it up, it pours out Love gives and belief saves. Whoever believes, it says here, in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's belief that saves. What, what a wonderful truth. 
I like all things uh, aviation. Helicopters are cool. I don't think they really should fly, but they do. Amazing, really cool. So here's a picture, and you think, nice helicopter in the sky there, Aerospital Dauphin, lovely, I like it. Uh, what's it doing? Well, zoom in a little bit. It's doing this wonderful thing, coming to save. It's the, uh, it's the Coast Guard there, and they've come to rescue these guys who have been lost. I want you to hear about God's intention for his son. God's intention for his son. Have a look at verse 17. See, we all know 17, uh, sorry, we all know 16, but do you know 17? Because I think verse 17 of chapter 3 just fills out the picture we have of the goodness of God. Have a look at verse 17 with me. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, I think it's absolutely brilliant that God loves me, but I'm tremendously assured where from the lips of his son, he says that my father did not send me into the world to condemn it, but to save the world. Isn't that beautiful? He did not come to condemn. He did come to save. And so I think John 3.16 is brilliant, but if I add to it, the intention of the father is to save and not condemn. How much more beautiful uh, is it shown to be? And so Jesus' mission was to save and not to condemn. So tuck, tuck verse 17 away. But then verse 18 adds even more, I think, and uh, is worthy of our attention. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the judge's gavel, and, and this is how decisions are made. You bang that, and what you've said stands. Uh, the guilty will be condemned, and the, and the innocent will be set free at least in good functioning courts. Have a look at verse 18. It it adds more and might surprise us. Whoever believes in him, that's in Jesus, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So I think this, this verse has the potential to be quite shocking for us. It tells us that belief changes everything, which is fantastic. That if you believe, you can be utterly forgiven, you can have eternal life, but it tells us something else. It says the default is that we start off condemned. And that should be a serious revelation to us. It's not that everyone is kind of on the fence and we're waiting to see which way we might tip. It says here, whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So we have something to take into account. The world that doesn't know Jesus yet is not in the balance. They are standing at enmity with God, declared condemned. So what does this belief mean, this belief that frees us from condemnation? What does it mean? Is it just a case of magical words? Do I just have to say I believe in Jesus and I'll be okay, I'll escape that condemnation? Uh, Does anyone know what this uh, symbol here means? Can you imagine what this lady is doing? Can someone tell me what she's doing? She's, she's, she's got her fingers behind her back. They're crossed like this. What does that mean that she's doing? She's lying. Okay, good. It means that she's lying. Now, if you don't know this, wonderful. 
uh, well done. You haven't done it before and you haven't misrepresented yourself. But here's the idea. The idea is that, I don't know where it comes from, but if I cross my fingers, I don't have to keep my promise. So I can speak a promise out with my lips that you can hear. I've got my get out of jail free card behind my back, right? That's what's going on in this picture here. I want to tell you a little bit about Isaiah, another part of the Old Testament. In Isaiah, uh, we have the people of God uh, being spoken to by the prophet Isaiah, and he's saying, you guys, you guys say that you love God, but your, your actions deny it. There's a sense in which there's a, a mismatch between your public words and your private life. And uh, in Isaiah, I'll just turn it up. It's just one verse, so don't worry. In Isaiah uh, 29... And verse 13 are these incredibly striking words. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based merely on human rules they have been taught. See, here's the thing. You can be with your mouth the most impressive Christian in the world, but if your heart is at odds with your mouth, it will count for nothing. And God saw straight through his people. He saw their cross fingers behind their back as they proclaimed themselves to be followers of God. He saw their cross fingers and he said, I see there's a disjunction between your heart and your lips. You cannot merely speak a set of magical words and be forgiven. That is not how it works. There needs to be an alignment between heart and words. An alignment between heart and words. And so God is looking for lips. For, for, um, for that they, were, they were working with lips and not lives, and God is looking for lives and not lips. There we go. Uh, Romans, our first reading, tells us what God is actually looking for. It's worth turning it up. Go, go to Romans chapter 10. Uh, Romans chapter 10. If you're in Isaiah, you've got a bit of a trek now to the other part of the Bible. But uh, in uh, Romans chapter 10, has someone got that page number handy? 11.35, thank you very much. I'm not sure what it is in the large print Bible. 17.21, look at this, quick fire, everyone, well done. Uh, so we're in Romans chapter 10, and uh, I'm going to read to us something that will speak a little bit to the combination between heart and words. Uh, Romans 10, and I'm reading 9 to 13. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. These are absolutely beautiful words. I love them. So what he's saying here is, number one, your lips will matter. You do need to do some confessing. We need to confess with our mouths. And then we need to do something that will be invisible to others. You can confess with your mouth, but you need to match it with something that's invisible to others. And so I've got a microphone there, and here's an ECG, right? There's something happening in your heart. There has to be a reading from your heart. And from your heart, you have to believe. The two things need to come together. And so we confess with our mouths, Jesus is Lord. 
Jesus is the king. Jesus is the boss. I'm living under no other authority than the Lord Jesus. Now, if you go back into this day and age, who would you have said is Lord? Caesar. Caesar is Lord. He's the, he's the one who reigns over all of the, the organized world. Caesar is Lord. And here's a group of, group of people doing something incredibly subversive. They're saying, I have another king. There is another king than Caesar. And Jesus is Lord. Now that is an earth-shaking, revolutionary thing. And if you ever wonder, why do countries persecute Christians? It's because to have allegiance to another king is innately subversive to authoritarian regimes. Sorry, I've got a bit wordy there. Here's the thing, here's the thing. If you're a communist state, but inside your country, you have a group of people who are saying our ultimate authority is Jesus, we march to a different beat than you, government, then all of a sudden you don't have everyone under your thumb. Do you see? And so the declaration that Jesus is Lord is profoundly revolutionary. Sounds a bit much in Australia, doesn't it? Sounds a bit over the top. Probably because of the freedom that we enjoy. But here's the thing. When we declare Jesus is Lord, we're saying there is no other allegiance higher than Jesus. So we declare with our mouths, Jesus is Lord, and we need to believe in our hearts that Jesus is risen. That the one who reigns on high died a real death. That he was physically raised and that he now reigns at the right hand of the Father, where he is the boss of heaven and earth. We profess and we confess. So what have we learned? I think we've learned some really important things. Some things about God and some things about humanity. And they will help us think about what we should do next. So what have we learned about God? God loves. Isn't that great? You see, as I understand it, and I'm no no scholar in, in Islam at all, but my understanding is that Allah is mighty and he's imposing, but I will throw myself on his mercy and he may choose or choose not to be merciful to me. I don't know deep in my heart that he loves. I can know that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ loves. Our God loves. It seems like a simple point, but the the one who made everything loves. And we're told here wonderfully, he seeks to save. He seeks to save. He didn't do that just by writing us a postcard. He came to see us, and he died for us in our place on the cross. He offers to mortals immortality. He offers us eternal life, and he has a kingdom where we can join him forever. That's what we've learned from these verses here. What have we learned about humanity? Uh, Guys, I've got to tell you, I think that the good news is absolutely brilliant. I love it. But the thing that makes it stand out is it's the way to be free from the standing state. The standing state of all humanity is that we are condemned. That is a a shocking piece of information. If If I tell that out there, I'll be in trouble, won't I? But if it's true, if that's the true spiritual state, and how do I know it? I didn't make this up. Who said it? You can tell me. Who said it? Jesus told us, didn't he? In John's gospel, Jesus told us, whoever has not believed in the Son stands condemned already. That's what it says. Who told me that? Some hateful person. 
No. The very one who would die to set us free. Is that right? So why would he tell us? Well, he tells us because it shows us how necessary his death was. Humanity stands together condemned, and yet it can be saved. That's the good news, isn't it? We can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ, not through onerous works. You don't have to cut yourself. You don't have to do extraordinary works of religious valor. You don't have to pay money. It's devastatingly simple. Give up claims of being the king yourself. Confess Jesus is Lord and trust that his death and resurrection were on your behalf. It's extraordinary. And then you can live forever. The one who works out who should and shouldn't live forever, we're told that too. It's God who is the judge. That's the setting. That's why this church exists. It's not just a holy huddle. It's a place where these truths are proclaimed and where we should be seeing new life come. Even today, right now, we should be seeing new life come. Does this mean that everyone will be saved? Well, I want to talk to you about feet for a second. Who likes feet? Some people don't like feet at all. I see a couple of shaking heads. I want you to have a look with me. There are some beautiful feet in the Bible. Have a look with me here at verses 14 and 15 of Romans 10. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? That's the point, isn't it, right? So we say if the world stands condemned, we go, well, then how can they be saved? How can they call on the one they have not believed in? And it continues, how can they believe in the one they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Can you see that? Each one of you here has the opportunity to have beautiful feet. Isn't that wonderful? You might think to yourself, oh, I'm not really proud of my feet. I always wear closed shoes. You know, my toes are a little bit... They can be beautiful, spiritually beautiful, because God can use you to bring the good news to people around you. Salvation comes through hearing the word and putting faith in Jesus. I want to tell you about a guy who I just love, a guy called Jim Elliott. He says, missionaries are very human folk. Missionaries are people who get this. He says, missionaries are very human folk, just doing what they are asked, simply a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. Isn't that great? A bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. Brilliant. Jim's life as a young man, he's a very, very talented young man, was grabbed by the fact that there are people in the world who had not heard, who had not heard. And so he says, he says this elsewhere, impelled then by these voices, I dare not stay home while the Chiquias perish. It's a group of, um, sorry? Listen to this man here. Kichuas. Is that better? Almost. Great. Um, so, uh, what if the well-fed church in the homeland needs stirring? They have the scriptures, Moses and the prophets, and a whole lot more. Their condemnation is written on their bank books and in the dust on their Bible covers. <laughs> oh, Jim, if you want to be beaten up, read Jim Elliot. He'll, he'll, he'll really get you. But here's the thing. He said, I can't stay home. There are actually people in the world right now who don't know Jesus. I've got to go. And so he went to Ecuador and he learnt the language and uh, this amazing group of uh, men and women made contact with this tribe that was in the middle of the Amazonian jungle. This is them landing their little plane on the beach to try and reach this tribe that had been killing people. 
They've been killing people. He lands the, they land the plane on the beach. They, they start to communicate with a, with a couple of them. And then, incredibly tragically, on January the 8th, 1956, five of these men were killed by the very people they were going to share the gospel with. An absolute tragedy. These young, devoted men are killed. But you know what? God doesn't waste anything. And with an extraordinary act of faith, two years later, his wife and his daughter, Jim's wife and his daughter, move into the village with these people and share the good news of Jesus. In that, in that tribe, people come to know and love Jesus. And this picture is of one of the men's sons with his arm around one of the men who was in the tribe that murdered his father. He's become a believer and they travel around the world pointing people to Jesus because of the forgiveness that's in him. Guys, it matters that there are people who haven't heard. It matters that you have the good news yourself. It's the reason that our wonderful friends Howard and Michelle are in the Philippines. They are there because they want people they long for people to hear the good news of Jesus, and it's taken them from their safe and comfortable home to the Philippines, where Howard's, I think, pulling his hair out, trying to learn the language, and because he wants to speak in his heart language, in the heart language of these people, to tell them the good news of Jesus. Now, look, that's people who go with beautiful feet. Will we agree those people have beautiful feet? And the church said, yeah, of course, they have beautiful feet. I want you to have beautiful feet, and we have a plan here at New Life for you. You might have heard of it before. We're all about giving the message of new life, and we have this plan. We want to help you connect with people, care for them, communicate the good news of Jesus, and lead them to commit to him as king. We, we have these priorities. We want to be giving and living, and we want to be supporting the, the giving of the message. In order to give it, we've got two priorities. I'm going to talk some more about this in our Vision Sunday coming up. Two priorities. We want to touch every home in Oran Park. That's audacious, isn't it? And we want to name Jesus publicly. How are we going to do that? What do we expect to see? What if we were a church that really got that? What if, what if at the end of this we prayed, Lord, we long to be the church who gives the message of new life? What would we like to see? Well, I would like to see households becoming Christians. One at a time, people coming to faith. And uh, there's a certain row in this, uh, in this church here where I'm rejoicing in seeing new life coming. One at a time through a household. I want to see that. I want to see each one of us move the people that we know and love one sea at a time further along. Have you never met them? Connect with them. Have you connected with them? Care for them. Have you cared for them? Communicate the good news of Jesus clearly. Have you communicated clearly? Pray like crazy that they would commit their lives to Jesus one sea at a time. I would love this to be a church where we are patient and prayerful. Because who does the saving? Jesus, Lord, make us a prayerful church that we would pray to see people saved. And you know what else? I believe that if we do that, that we'll see our church grow as God calls people from darkness to light. So what about right here? Well, we must have a response, mustn't we? And I want to challenge you today. Are you willing to invite your 316441 people to join us over Christmas? Don't worry about that if you're new here today. What does that mean? The people that you're praying for, are you going to invite them to come to church? Because here's the thing. Just let you on a little secret. You don't have to 
do all of that speaking and proclaiming work yourself if you bring them along. You can outsource that to me. I'm going to do it. Right? I'm going to tell you to keep speaking, so don't worry. We'll, we'll, we'll get you onto it. But here's the thing. If you're just up to connect care, bring them. I'll do the communicating. How's that sound? Bring them along. I want you to hear this and go, I can bring a friend along at Christmas. And then I want to ask you, are you willing to communicate Jesus in your social media and Christmas cards? See, I don't want you to say, have a great Christmas, Merry Christmas. I want you to say, say Merry Christmas, that's fine, it's not illegal to do that. I want you to name Jesus. I want you to say, Jesus is the reason for the season. Yeah? That's not too difficult, is it? Jesus is the reason for the season. That's why we have this holiday. Don't like it? Skip the holiday, go to work. All right. I want to think, so I think we must name Jesus. I want to give you a possible uh, Daniel's not here today. Da- Daniel Bastias and I uh, have started a little team. We're calling every home because we- we're going to try and touch every home in Oran Park. How are we going to do that? I don't know, but Daniel and I are going to try and work it out. We're looking for crazy people to come and join us. You might like to join us. Here's one of the things we want to do. Uh, we want to invite people to carols and our Christmas services one door at a time in, in a couple of Sundays' time. So we're going to have a brochure. We're going to knock on doors. We're going to say, hey, we're your friendly local church. Carols is on and we've got a great Christmas service. Come and join us. Easy, isn't it? See, just see how easy that was? Do you notice I said we might at the top of that? I'm, I'm looking for people who, who figure that it's worth doing and with a little bit of training, and, and I'll come and stand with you the first couple of times, uh, would be willing to do it. Because here's the thing, I reckon every home needs to know, and this is the best invitation we can give them. Carol's is brilliant. And Christmas is going to be great. Isn't that right, Kathy? It's going to be great. I've seen some plans. It's going to be, it's going to be brilliant. Okay, remember this bloke? His pen. What did he say to us? How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? Here's what, if you've heard this sermon today, we can't be. We cannot be mute. We cannot be mute, church. If you don't believe it, that's one thing. If you believe it, you cannot be silent. I'm going to ask Daniel to pray for us.